Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 28th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. Tonight we are discussing quantum neural networks. Yes, we are using the Q word, but there is no hoodoo or voodoo here. Just good, fun, hard science. My guest is Nicole Tedesco. Correct. She is Hello? a very brilliant lady, and I'm sure she will give us a stupendous performance. Let's begin with the inception of neural networks, which begins with McCullough Pitts, and that was as far back as 1943. This was mm -hmm. formulated. And what was the basic idea behind it? They were trying to provide a very basic model for the human neuron, or for any neuron, in animal brains. And they had it down to a very simple model. You know, they were thinking in terms of capacitors, resistors, and that kind of thing. And they go, oh, that's nice. But the idea was that it could to absorb feedback. And they started from there. The perceptron, I believe they called it. The perceptron was given to a later formulation. I believe that was in 55. And that took two inputs and gave an output. So it was very simple, mm -hmm. a single neuron. Yeah, I mean, the ability to model neurons, I mean, it does go back probably even to Volta and his study with, with frogs and stimulating their spinal cords and all that other good stuff and, and measuring measuring ele the electricity, which then helped him to create batteries and all that good stuff is why we use the term volts these days. So it's it's been a, actually it's been quite a long struggle. How do you, how do you model something complex like the neuron. And it turns out the more we learn about it, even now, the more complex it gets. I would say the next big break in neural networks came from a guy named John Hopfield. And he started, he was actually studying magnetic domains, but looking at something called a Hopfield network actually helped with neural networks in general and uh, that's that was a big break matter of fact what i think the biggest break was from hopfield networks onwards was that um the the field was dominated for a little little while by the mit group uh, chomsky and, and others and they were looking at it from a regular computer kind of perspective you know we we had a cpu and we had an internal sort of machine code for language and this kind of thing. And it, the majority of the funding was going that way. But then along came Hoffield. And he's looking, wait a minute, you know, there's some, when we look at these sort of networks, when you look at neurons put together, um, this is sort of towards the late 70s, early 80s, we see that these networks have something in common with other physical models we've used in the past like magnetic domains and 
that kind of thing. Well, that's really interesting. So uh, that really helped move away from that sort of computer computer analog model of uh, Chomsky and Minsky to uh, something more uh, realistic. That started, a, and I remember in the eighties, that started a whole a whole lot of do-it-yourself experimentation, a lot of experimentation. It really sort of opened, I felt it opened up the field quite a bit. I was not happy with the state of things in the 70s, I remember. I was a kid, but I was still not happy with it. And then come um, Hopfield and a few others, and that's when I started dipping my toe into, into the ring. Now, let's give an example for our listeners of neural network algorithm, the perceptron. Let's start with that. So you take in the inputs, you multiply the inputs by their weights, then you sum them, and then you figure out the output. Right, right. And the output is a threshold output. In other words, nothing happens until a certain threshold is reached. So if the sum of the inputs times their weights, and there's a different weight on each, you know, each perceptron can have a number of inputs, and each one has a weight, and that weight, by the way, is variable. It's, or if you're used to radio, old radio terminology, it's the gain. What happens is that uh, if the sum of the input times the weight is reaches past the threshold, then the thing fires. And once it does fire, it sort of actually changes the weight a little. Um, a weight sum that helped fire it to begin with sort of gains some weight right afterwards. So that the same set of inputs are more likely to fire the thing the next time. And we call this memory. So that's, that was how the original, you know, the original perceptron, the original set of neural networks worked. And it's actually the basic model which people use today. So if it's almost Darwinian, you know, if a certain set of inputs, and you can have two inputs, 10 inputs, 100 different places of input, and all the outputs from these perceptrons, these neurons, are connected to everybody else's input. I mean, it's it's a very it could be a big jumbled mess if you wanted to, because that's how the brain is. It's a can be a jumble in there. And what happens is that signals that created an output once should be more likely to create those create an output again. So, for instance, if you have ten inputs, and what happened is at one time, just because of the weights that were already existent. Uh, you happen to get an input, a signal on input one, two, five, and seven, and it caused an output. Well, the next time you get an input on one, two, five, and seven, it would be actually be easier to create an output. Um, and that's how it goes. It's sort of like burning a groove in a record you know, for those who used to do vinyl. <laughs> if you play the vinyl too much, you know, that, that groove gets deeper and deeper. And if you happen to have a skip on the very first play, that skip will never go away. It just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And it's when you get by it again, you're just so much more likely to hit that skip. You know, pop, pop, skip, skip. It's almost the same process. 
I have no familiarity with that process. <laughs> I have a few decorative albums from my dad's collection, but I do not have a vinyl player. Uh. Now, the Perceptron has a major limitation, which is that it can only solve linearly separable problems. Yeah, it is. So the mathematics of this is very simple. And it um, is not really... And you're right, when, when you talk about linearly separable problems, that means that, you know, variables are easily separated and cause and effect between the different parts are easily separated. And this whole thing is very easily analyzed, analyzable, literally for mathematical people out there. So, yes, it is a very linear, very straightforward system. Now, real neurons are not so straightforward. And what we mean by, one of the things about mathematically straightforward systems is um, that they don't deal with, let's say, infinities very well. They don't deal with lots of wibblies and wobblies and um, non-linearities or, or chaos. They don't deal with chaos very well. So as a, for instance, I think most everybody's familiar with the old Zeno's paradox where to get from point, you know, get from here to there, you got to get halfway between here to there. And to get halfway between, you got to have get halfway between there and the infinite regression of halfways. How could you ever possibly cross? And that was the old Zeno's paradox. Now we've Mathematically, we've, we've solved it, let's say, in, the, in Isaac Newton's time. We solved it by saying that magically somehow uh, mathematics does sort of paper over that. Uh, in other words, those infinities don't exist. And, and there are certain patterns in mathematics that help us deal with that. And we call, and Newton called that, and Leibniz as well, they called that... Uh, calculus, differentiable, you know, differentiable calculus and various other things they called it. And it helped us deal with those kinds of numbers that seem to go on forever or sequences that go on forever, but they do converge on something and they magically converge. Now, mathematically, there's no way you can actually do the numbers and converge on 22, for instance, given some, given some long series. Now, the problem is those old perceptrons of very straightforward mathematics are in the same boat as Zeno's paradox. They, they really can't deal with um, certain infinities. They really can't deal with complexities. Now, what you can do is you can play Isaac Newton and you can sort of paper over them. Uh, even mathematics such as topology, which is the mathematics of surfaces, does a lot of sort of papering around infinities. Uh, so there's a, in mathematics, there's a lot of that. But nature, you know, does it very well. You, well, wait a minute, nature doesn't have calculus. Nature just is. How does nature deal with infinities? How does nature deal with all those things that in human mathematics we've had to paper around? So classic perceptrons, classic neural networks still have these problems. Now, one way, because we know nature deals with this, when we look forward to things like 
quantum computers. We, we know that at the quantum, you know, with quantum scale interactions, somehow nature does paper over these infinities. I mean, quantum physicists have been dealing with these for years, and, and they've invented cool tools called renormalization or something, which literally just paper over these infinities. Uh, Richard Feynman had called them, you know, dippy processes. You know, well, they just work. We don't exactly know why. They just work. So we still do a lot of that, but quantum mechanics, meh, nature is fine with it. So one thought is that if, we're, if we use quantum, quantum computers in the future, we can use nature's own methods of actually coming to these, it, dealing with these, these more complex mathematical topics because, well, nature just does it anyway. In reality, human mathematics is just a model of how reality works, and any model is always incomplete. It's the nature of a model. If you didn't have the model, you'd have the real thing. It's no longer a model. It's just it. So, you know, neurons in a brain, in any brain, are in a similar boat like the quantum computer in terms of they magically do certain things that our mathematics are having a hard time dealing with. But when you program a neuron you can only program using the straightforward mathematics. That is the nature of today's computing. Uh, not quantum computing, but, you know, the usual computers we find in laptops are very straightforward. And matter of fact, in some respects, you can say the mathematics of the underlying mathematics of today's computers really have not broke past 1900 in terms, you know, the year 1900 in terms of mathematics or, you know, somewhere around there when they're still dealing with what's called naive set theory. Um, and that's what we're stuck with with today's neural networks. Now, when we talk about quantum mechanics, or let's say even quantum neural networks, we were talking about using nature's own processes to help us with this complex mathematics that we really can't deal with in a, in a contemporary computer. Well, before we move on, and talk a bit about that. We are still at the level of a single neuron, and we want to touch on how, for instance, given a task, how do we compute how each neuron or connection contributes to the errors, possible errors, and how it's optimized? And of course, the answer is backpropagation. Mm -hmm. So, Backpropagation, the way current neural networks are created in normal computers, is that all the inputs, let's say for instance the input is a picture of somebody, and all and there's like a lot of these internal neurons with a lot of internal um, inputs, and the inputs are, you know, particular pixels in the image and their colors and the colors can be represented by any number of different inputs you know red inputs yellow inputs green inputs blue inputs and by the way i do say red yellow green and blue because we're humans are actually pretty good at dealing with the yellow part of the spectrum as well and we seem to have a, an affinity for it but um at some point all those inputs times their current weights will create a whole bunch of outputs 
great. It's got an output. It's an output. What does that output look like? It just looks like some jumble. Now, what a neural network system will do is it'll look like it'll look at that jumble from the picture. And let's say the picture is of me. And I'm trying to create an algorithm that recognizes my face. And by the way, in Windows 10, you now have this option of using your face as your input pin is your ability to unlock the computer. You need a special camera with it that Intel's device and future laptops and computers will have that. But now let's say I want to design that. So the very first thing I do is I, I present my face as a single photograph to the system and it creates some jumble, some sort of coded output jumble. Now what I do is I store that, I could store that jumble and that's very nice. Whatever that jumble is, it becomes a signature of sorts. And that's very nice. Now, one picture alone is not going to help with facial recognition. Because one, I could change my hair. I could just change the angle I'm looking at the camera. Lighting has changed. Or I just look like, I just look like hell in the morning. You know, whatever the case is. So you really do need a couple of different images coming in. So you can, so you could start the network all over again and just, you know, just get different signatures each time. I guess that's one way to do it, but it's really wasteful and it's not very robust because there's, there's really a lot of different ways I may look. What we want is a system that can guess that, you know, what I'm looking at is Nicole. And it's, you know, I want the same signature to come out at the end for any number of similar inputs. Now, how do we do that using a neural network? We do that in part of, in, in one strategy is what's called back propagation. So we start with um, a number of pictures. We can just start with one. And we can, and the output can always, uh, let's say the second picture, you know, me on a nice day, me on a horrible hair day. And what happens is that you could train the neural network. In other words, when the, you could always, you could train it by showing it all of the similar pictures. Now, what happens is that the outputs from the neurons, especially on the second, third try, they get fed back to inputs and there's this sort of feedback loop. Uh, and, and what we call back propagation. We're propagating the results back to the inputs. And what that does, it helps to burn in the groove, so to speak. Uh, so multiple pictures. Now what we're assuming in the training session is that we are assuming that all the pictures are indeed similar. This is what we're telling the system. So what happens is all these similar pictures come in. And even though the output of each one is a slightly different signature, because it all feeds back into the system again, what happens is that there's part of the neural network that thinks that, you know, even with a new picture, that the old picture is actually also part of the uh, training set, what we call it. Oh, okay. So... It's in a way, it's like showing the system two pictures at once. Then you get a third picture. And because now you're back propagating 
the results from, you know, the sort of some results of the last two training sessions. It's sort of like showing the system three pictures at once and four and five. And what it's really doing, it's building a, a linear statistical weight of all these pictures. And which you hope in the end that it always gives you a very close same signature for no matter what I look like today, you know, um, bad hair day, not bad hair day, and that the same signature at the end comes out, the Nicole signature. Um, and you might be thinking, well, gee, there's a couple different ways it can go wrong. And yes, there's a couple different ways it can go wrong. Uh, there, there's a number of problems, well-known problems of backpropagation, but in you know, many cases it is good enough. With the exception of, you know, you wouldn't want such a system as I described, you wouldn't want it to, um, as a gateway for a high security computer. You know, when I was working at Boeing and we had very high security around there, you wouldn't want to use that because of the high potential error rate. It's not quite enough. You can get a lot of false negatives, a lot of false positives. And some other problems are associated with the burning groove problem in the old record it's like if you make a mistake in the beginning, man, it's really hard to get rid of it. It's 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 very tough, um, and that was that was an old problem from back propagation, going back to the eighties, and everybody was kind of getting frustrated with it. So there's been there's been other sort of um, classic com computational solutions to back propagation. One is just randomly destroy part of the network and replace it every once in a while, just to just to mix things up during the training session um you know there, a number of things so uh, that's when you hear about neural networks in a classic computer most of what you deal with is back propagation it's also feed forward networks and uh, some other various other strategies for helping to deal with you know burn in problems errors rates and trying to get things as as precise as possible. In fact, the new Windows facial recognition system uses something similar, probably actually more straightforward than what I described from a neural network. But it actually uses three different kinds of cameras. Uh, in other words, three different kinds of inputs and sort of gets a vote, lets each of them vote. One of them is an infrared camera, so you can't just hold a picture of me in front of the system. If there's no infrared, you know, signature, it gets a vote, no deal. And there's also a 3D camera, which is sort of looking at my contours, and that gets a vote. So, like, there's many of these sort of strategies for dealing with. And guess what? You know, it's amazing. The the brains grew up with all these all specialized machinery, and guess what? There's a lot of voting going on inside our brains. If you look inside the brain, it's it's a very complex, lots of specialized things going on, like 3D perception over here, vertical line perception over there, horizontal, color, and they all get a piece. All right. As you were saying a little bit earlier about quantum effects in biology, this is not just the idle speculation of New Agers, but the area of serious research. Most can imagine that quantum effects play a role, for instance, in photosynthesis mm -hmm. and cellular respiration, mm -hmm. but those aren't especially pertinent to our topic today. Mm -hmm. More interesting, there's Brownian motion in certain cellular processes, 
and quantum vibrational effects in microtubules, which mm -hmm. form the cytoskeleton and play some roles in the shuttling of nutrients and other factors into and out of cells. So very critical parts of the body and very crucial in brain function. Mm -hmm. And famously, Roger Penrose is the one who proposed this theory. And he was met with the retort of the brain being too warm, wet, and noisy for quantum effects to take place. Well, it turns out that that's not completely true, is it? There's actually a lot. Of, I mean, it's all about quantum chemistry, really. Um, protein folding, for instance. Uh, the simple thing of, you know, when, when your cells are creating proteins, they all have very specific, sometimes very complex, well, very complex shapes. Now, how do they get their shapes? Quantum effects. You know, as as the, especially things like, uh, you know, as, there be, as the little machines inside the cell sort of crank out, extrude these proteins, and as they're extruded, they sort of fold in on themselves in different ways and very complex ways. Um, they could be... And, that's that's really interesting, and it's all it's all about quantum effects. There's quantum effects happening everywhere. The usually what happened when people had the retort, they just really didn't think through the problem enough. Though, wait a minute, it's all of biology is is one giant quantum chemistry problem. Oh yeah, okay. So that isn't it is not true. Now, what on the other hand, what what they were actually referring to was um, Roger Penrose in particular, which I'm not, I don't remember if he actually started proposing it, but uh, it was actually Stuart Hameroff, who was an anesthesiologist, a uh, professional anesthesiologist still, and works at the University of Tucson, Arizona in Tucson, uh, where he teaches and he continues to practice. Um, what he found was back in the, back in the 80s, he was studying the effects of anesthesia and very important. Well, how does it work? How can we create better anesthetics, especially general anesthetics? Uh, what is anesthesia? I remember him asking me this question one time. So what do you think anesthesia is? And I, I gave him something else. Ultimately, um, when we look at it professionally, anesthesia is at the very, you know, it's, it's least function is to kill the ability to remember what's going on. Mm, okay, interesting. Um, and and you go on from there. So they view it. They view all these other things like uh, knockout consciousness as, as a feature, uh, as opposed to. I mean, there's a basic feature of no memory, and then everything else is a feature on top of it. Um, so as he was reaching researching all this stuff, you have to answer the question. So how do these anesthetics work how do they how do they impact cells and what he started finding is that it was that anesthetics were impacting uh, a lot of the transport mechanisms that you mentioned along the cytoskeleton inside each cell and inside that garble of of struts and you know microtubules and things which hold the cell together apart uh, helps the cell divide 
like springs pulling the two halves apart. And he found that it, it, there was a lot, a lot of these anesthetics worked by stopping the transport layers. So he was researching the, uh, the quantum chemistry of the transport layer. And early on, he wrote a book about nanotechnology because he was, you know, this, I'm sure you're aware when you start studying the biology, you know, cellular biology, you start finding all these machines in there. I mean, real, like, like we would consider machines, you know, these uh, little protein factories and, you know, they, they, these, you know, proteins come in, they literally just sort of get stitched together by these machines and out comes something else. Oh, that's, my God, it's just this wonderful life of industrialism sitting inside the cell. So he initially wrote a book on nanotechnology. Well, gee, could we build machines like this? Uh, then he started, I think he started collaborating with Roger Penrose afterwards. So then they started talking about consciousness because, well, it is kind of what anesthesia and, you know, um, uh, anesthetologists do and along comes Roger Penrose and he, he had a, a theory about consciousness itself they started asking the question well what is consciousness why is it that we you know what is the physical mechanism by which we can perceive anything and all that we have a subjective eye experience as opposed to no subjective experience at all and being a zombie for instance um, and it is possible. I mean, I had this experience when I was a kid um, before we used helmets a lot when riding bicycles. And I used to ride, I used to ride bicycle a lot. And I was riding real fast, wasn't paying attention, blew a red light. Yeah, I was 17, wasn't that bright. So a car hits me, not at a high speed, but high enough where I flipped over the car and I landed on my head. Cool. Oh, yeah, it was... It, but I didn't feel any pain. Oh, you know, I remember what happened. It's like, I've got to be injured. But I can see nothing, hear nothing, feel nothing. I have no idea where I am. And I'm thinking, I'm, this, is this is going on for some time. I'm thinking, am I dead? Is this what dead is? Just nothingness? Oh, dear. Um, am I alive? Let's see. Uh, I got hit in the leg. Let's see if I can stand up and feel any pain. I'm trying to send commands to do stand up. And I don't know what's happening. Anyway, at some point, I'm suddenly face to face with this guy, and we're talking. And I stop and I say, "Who are you?" And it comes it comes to find out that, you know, he told me all about the accident, and you know, I was fine. I was in front of a donut shop, so there was cops right there. It was, it was lots of you know, great fun, I guess. And everybody was okay. The car wasn't actually damaged because I actually didn't hit it. My bike absorbed almost all the all the force. It was a jumble. And I had just a mere bruise on my one leg. But, and the cop looked at me, okay, I was okay, everybody fine, everybody went their separate, this was the 70s. So it wasn't, you know, people were a little bit more lax about these things then. But in the meantime, everybody had gone away and this kid who had seen me just fly by in a bicycle was, was he liked bicycle racing. So I guess we were talking about bicycle racing for like 45 minutes. And I go, really? I, I wasn't slurring. I wasn't, I was okay. Was, yeah, you were fine. Well, that's news to me. It's interesting how my body went on having conversations with the driver, with the cops, with this guy who enjoyed bicycle riding, and I wasn't there for it. What I was there for was 
nothingness. It was just the weirdest experience in my life. And I remember talking about it with Stu. Um, and, uh, but anyway, what is consciousness? The, and it's not about acting. Like say in my, I, I was a perfect zombie for that 45 minutes after my accident where my body and conversation was happening just fine without the subjective I experience being attached to it, but isolated somewhere else. I would love to go into more detail about consciousness towards the end. Okay. But at this time, we talked about neural networks and their applications to pattern recognition. Mm-hmm. But we have not talked about their applications in signal processing, mm -hmm. control, sensors, time series prediction... And I think that about covers it. And this is a good segue for information theory. And ladies and gentlemen, earlier this morning, before we sat up, I was a little concerned that Nicole would beat me with a ruler because I called information theory abstract. What I meant was it is a large and fundamental area of study. So that was my concern about covering it here, or attempting to. Mm. Uh, well, <laughs> it's a good thing we're not physically, you know, physically in the same room. <laughs> but you didn't get beaten. You, you, you survived no bruises. What, what I meant is that it's, I mean, it's abstract like any sort of specialized mathematical domain is abstract. But it, it, the fundamental idea is actually quite simple. It is the study of, let's say, the, the study of the quality of signals. That's how it was originally proposed by a guy named Shannon. So when you hear Shannon entropy or Shannon, Shannon information theory, it's referring to the guy who first brought it out. I think he's working for AT&T. And indeed, they were, they were dealing with communication over phone lines and the quality of signals. And he needed a way to quantify it. Um, he came up with something called the entropy of a signal, which it turns out is direct is directly related to the thermodynamic concept of entropy, which is why we have something called quantum information theory later. But the quality of a signal, and what he meant by that was that there is something transmitting a single, a single signal, and there's certain information content. Then there's something receiving that signal. And Maybe it receives all the information. Maybe it doesn't. What is, how do you quantify the sort of slip in the information transmission process? How do you quantify information loss? And this matches with the idea of thermodynamic entropy because the way it's, it's stated now to usually undergrads, physics students, is that Thermodynamic entropy is the amount of information missing to completely describe a system. And you can say the same thing about Shannon information entropy. You know, what is the information that the receiver is missing? How much information is receiver missing in order to completely describe what the sender wanted, you know, what the sender intended to send? So, for instance, I have, if the sender sends, you know, some sentence little brown fox jumped over the lazy dog 
And the only thing he received was lazy dog. Well, you know, we need some way of being able to care to quantify the information loss. And he just had a simple logarithmic, it was a logarithmic, simple logarithmic formula for entropy. And it turns out thermodynamic entropy is also a logarithmic function. Well, that's nice. Um, so that at, at the heart is information theory. Now, in the quantum mechanical sort of you know, context, we look at information in a in a much more interesting way and let's say a broader perspective that that maybe the you know everything in the universe it's all about information all of physics is about information processing uh the universe is one giant information processor and that's the model and of course you know every model is going to be imprecise compared to actual reality but it's a human model it's something we can understand so you know, analogies metaphors call it what you like but that's what it is so the model is that the universe is like a giant information processor of some kind a giant quantum computer um, when we deal with a quantum scale interaction there is information loss there's information gain how do we characterize the information loss and information gain between source and receiver now that's quantum information theory Right, and most everyone is familiar, whether they know it or not, with lossless and lossy forms of compression, for example, which is why when this is exported as an MP3, there will be a very slight loss mm -hmm. in its quality. And that means its entropy is higher than one. And Shannon information theory... Uh, one bit it was basically lowest entropy was a perfect correspondence. There was a one-to-one -one correspondence between source and re receiver. If your if as your entropy rises, you get a little you get loss, lost, more loss. A very high entropy system has a lot of loss between source and receiver. In other words, what you know, what you have ultimately might be garble. And utter rubbish and you know your your information your entropy is thus basically infinite from a mathematical perspective if it's perfectly random um so you're right in a lossless system you have perfect correspondence entropy of one very nice what was placed you know what was seen by the device is what's coming out is what's encoded into the file. Now, a lossful, you know, a noisy compression like MP3, I mean, it's good enough for the human ear. It, there's only, you know, the loss that's suffered doesn't matter in most circumstances, you know, to, to mere mortals. Only if you're, you know, powering, I don't know, whatever you're powering, let's say a, a very large stage and small, sonic signals can make it you know have a big disruptive impact on on the sound you know they induce feedback they induce whatever uh, noisy signals can be can be difficult when you're really powering a system i used to do sound as well back for a little while when i was back in like late high school and early college which ties in with an application of neural networks which is with hearing aids mm. filter out 
the noise we don't want and to amplify the noise we want. So a simple neural network can be used that way. Again, remember how they work. Uh, you can train them to sort of give the same signature each time for inputs that are similar. Now, what now what can happen in something like a hearing aid, a consumer device like that, the neural network is burnt in. Well, I think if I was to, to design one, uh, and I'm sure there's many designs, many different patents, if I was to design one, my first thought was, let's characterize typical noise. Let's train this with typical noise and burn this system so it doesn't modify itself after that. Um, and it'll always recognize typical noise. And when it see when the when the device sees this signature of oh typical noise, it just simply uh, creates the opposite signal, adds the two together, and they become null. Uh, the same, you know. I, I think we've heard. I think we we're familiar with that phenomenon of destructive interference in waves. And you can do the same thing in in digital signal processing. You have a voice pattern. And if you just mathematically invert the entire pattern, so, you know, when an up wave becomes a down wave and then you superimpose them, they become nothing. You get silence. And in a, if you get some, if you get a program like Audacity, which is a voice recorder and you can see all the voice prints, you can find that, that you can isolate background noise and manually if you wanted to. You can, for all the background noise, you can, you know, just create its inverted pattern and filter it out. Well, that's nice. So what happens with those neural nets? And I, like I say, I'll burn them in to keep them from changing on the consumer. Um, they would recognize a signature of noise inside inside the data stream and then simply invert it and add it back in and it gets canceled out. So we'll see that in things like, you know, the jawbone, um, Bluetooth headsets that people might have used or something like that, noise canceling of any kind. Your iPhone has it. Um, and again, one critical feature is not letting it modify itself like neural networks will, because they may be designed back propagation, like you mentioned, where the, you know, last output feeds back into the new input. And, uh, you know, you, you don't want a consumer product to change on you. Uh, because it could retrain itself for something else, and suddenly it's it's retraining on your voice. Oops! Suddenly everybody can hear odd other things, but not hear your voice. So you want to burn that that guy in. We do not want mutating hearing aids. You got it. You got it. So it's so that now it's one thing about the human brain. It doesn't get burned in, does it? It's always mutating. Not, not for consumer products. So when you're designing things in, an, in, an, in the engineering world, mutation is not always a good thing. Digital signal, same thing with any kind of, I mean, any kind of signal. There's a lot of this that's used in signal processing. Now, it doesn't always have to be neural nets. There are simpler algorithms that kind of do the same thing. Um, you know, using, let's say, what, what you may find is that let's say in the lab you're using neural nets and you simply see the signature uh, over and over again. So wait a minute, you know, these neural nets always, you know, all uh, done a hundred different trials was kind of the same noises. And I come up with a sim similar signature each time, which can be expressed in a binary number. And you may find that there's, you know, by some, you know, tweaking, you find that eh, there's a much simpler way of generating this, this signature 
from pure number. So it actually might make itself into the consumer product is not a neural network, but you might have used that in your original research. You just found a simpler way to generate that signature again, given given the noise, and that's just simply inverted. Um, that's the other thing about consumer products. You don't necessarily need the baggage of a neural network, and I call it baggage because, to, you know, the larger the network, the more information it can consume and adjust to. So to be real detailed about, let's say, photographic process, you need a lot of artificial neurons. Because one neuron can only handle so much information. But 100 neurons can handle 100 more. Or depending on how you, you know, 200 more or 1,000, depending on how you built your model. And that's basically how many inputs each one has. But it is going to be linear in some respects. Again, we get back to the whole idea of linearity and mathematics of, of simple algorithms of Zeno's paradox, which is another example of simple algorithm. Um, but there are usually many simpler ways of accomplishing the same thing. So in consumer products, do you need to ship a small neural network each time? Maybe, maybe not, depending on the problem you're trying to solve, depending on whether or not you found shortcuts in the lab, that kind of thing. And sometimes those shortcuts are something called, uh, you know, there's just different ways of generating different signatures given complex information. Um, and that signature is kind of a compression. And of course, compression can be lossful, as we've mentioned before. Any kind of compression, be it a visual sound or just a, any stream of numbers. Um, we've seen that, in, you know, maybe you've seen something called a CRC check somewhere on the web or, you know, some kind of encryption key. These are by design lossful compressions of, of streams and reason we, why they're purposely lossful by the way in, in in encryption and in security is because what you want is you want a a system which loses information during the encryption process so that it's not easy to add it back so in other words you end up with an encryption key but what's the you know we'll maybe call it a private uh, a public key but what's the private key? And only the original person who, who the original source of the information, which had the original information to begin with, only they can add it back. Um, but in the meantime, it got lost in the translation, very high entropy, um, lots of loss, and comes out as a public key, which for all intents and purposes right now in history, cannot be guessed, say, easily. So... I um. I believe we have gotten to the point of discussing the meat of the matter mm -hmm. of quantum neural networks, which sounds very intimidating, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. So when you look at Stuart Hammerhaus and, and Roger Penrose's work, now Penrose came in as a physicist, and they started thinking, well, what is the nature of consciousness? Stuart Hamrock by that point goes, you know, listen, I find, you know, consciousness is a matter of, of quantum chemistry in some way or shape or, you know, or another. So Penrose came in saying, well, what is it? What do we mean by that quantum chemistry? And one of the things that they, that Hammeroff focused on was quantum, was isolation of quantum interactions at the level of microtubules. 
And he said, you know, there's sometimes when these microtubules get very, get very isolated for periods of time. Um, and this is what I think some of the people were objecting to. And what does that mean when a quantum scale system is left alone? And we have, a, in programming, we have a thing where, you know, you never leave a programmer alone because you never know what you're going to get, you know. They'll go on, they'll go wild and program something which you didn't want. And the same thing with quantum scale systems. When I say quantum scale systems, I just say something really small, so small that it's really difficult for normal physics to work. There's nothing magical about it. It's just that it's just really small. And things like um, distance and momentum, simple things like that, just don't have enough room to show up in the same place. Really? Physical things like quantum, like momentum and distance can't be in the same place at the same time? Pretty much so. It, it can be like that. It's that small. So there's nothing magic about quantum scale systems. But what happens is that when a quantum scale system is left to itself for some time, it can, it can compute. Um, and what we mean by compute, matter of fact, I asked the same thing of, of Stuart Hameroff, what is it computing? And what we mean by compute in a, in any quantum computer is that it can come up with an answer to Zeno's paradox in a way. It can derive a maximum value for a system or a minimum value of a system. And what we mean by derive, it's sort of like, it just has enough time to fit a mold or what's called a traveling salesman problem. You have a sales guy who can, or a woman who can go, I don't know, a hundred different places in the country, who needs to go a hundred different places in the country. And you want to conserve gas. What is the shortest total route? If we were to connect all the dots, what's the shortest total route? And what's called the travel sa traveling salesman problem, or Hamiltonian, another fancy name for it. Now, you know, given all the possibilities of routes, a quantum system, scale system left to itself, will either give you a maximum, you can set it up for either one. It can give you a maximum value for the route, because what will happen is that conceptually we say, well, it tries all the different routes, so it comes up with a maximum, then it sort of ends. It's, not, it's probably not what really happens, but like every model is imprecise compared to reality, but it, it's a model that works for most people right now at this time in history. So we say that a quantum scale system left alone will maximize or minimize a something, some values. Now in a quantum neural network, if you were to think of such a thing, would minimize or maximize some value. If we think about a neural network, one of the things that that feedback system will do, it'll maximize the weights of the inputs for similar inputs. As we described before, if we show enough Nicole pictures, bad hair days, good hair days, the weights, the weights that are associated with the Nicole kinds of pictures will be very high. So every time a Nicole picture comes in, it is more likely to fire the outputs. Whereas if, you know, um, you know, picture of Bill Clinton comes in, no, it won't fire the, the same ones. It, the weights just aren't the same. So if we want to maximize the Nicole weights, we, a quantum neural network could do so rapidly. Um, cause quantum scale systems, when they're left alone, they, they seem to, uh, take very little time, if any time at all in some cases very little time in coming to some minimum maximum decision. 
go, oh, that's very nice. It's very powerful. But while the timing is nice, the fact that nature does come to these min-max problems, they do, you know, nature does answer Zeno's paradox. Nature does uh, get around division by zero. You know, in mathematics, we don't like division by zero, but nature seems to have no problem with it, and uh, which perplexes physicists. That's why we have, again, use things like renormalization, because there's literally there's division by zero, so we have to paper over it. Um, but a quantum system doesn't seem to have any problem with zero. So a quantum computer can do two things for us. It can do things fairly rapidly. N from a computational perspective, though, it will not do it instantaneously. That That is a myth, so you won't have instantaneous answers to things, but really, really quick. Um, and it'll give you answers. It'll give you an answer to a minimum maximum problem. Not always the same answer, by the way. But what will happen is that the answer you're looking for will come back more often than not. So get this in a quantum computer. One reason why it won't be as fast as instantaneous because you may have to do a couple trials and see what answer comes up more likely. So, uh, But it's still quicker than normal systems. Now, a regular computer that we all know and love does not answer Zeno's paradox. And it will be computationally incomplete. It'll go into a never-ending never loop. And you'll eventually get a stack dump and you get no answer. That's a that'll be one difference, the big difference between quantum computers and a classical computer, which we call Turing von Neumann architecture, if you want the fancy word for it. Perhaps we should talk about a topic I find very intriguing, but unfortunately I only began reading about this morning and certainly deserves a podcast of its own, which is quantum information theory, mm -hmm. which is obviously very pertinent to what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. So quantum information theory, is, as I mentioned, is, the, is a model of reality in which the entire universe is a giant information processor, and really all of physics can be uh, expressed in terms of information processing. It's not a it's not a bad model, and it does work uh, for a lot of things. Um, and like I say, even for thermodynamics, the old thermodynamic concept of entropy can be restated in terms of information. Like I say, how much information do we as as experimentalists, experimentalists or the observer, how much information are we lacking to completely describe the position and momentum of every single atom in this thing of gas? You know, um, and in quantum scale systems, information is very slippery. Like I say, there there are physical things that cannot exist at the same time at quantum scale systems. Like, like for instance, the old Heisenberg uncertainty principle says that, well, momentum and position cannot exist at the same time in quantum scale systems. Ah, oh, geez, you know, that's kind of annoying. So information is incomplete. Information is slippery because you sort of need all of this in order to have lowest possible entropy. Um, oh, geez, you say. So quantum information, um, you know, let, let's talk about how information is processed. You may have heard something called holograph, the holographic principle, which mm -hmm. has been used a lot by cosmologists to describe um, Universe, the 
universal, you know, universe expansion to describe black holes. Hawking is very much into uh, quantum information theory with respect to modeling black holes. Matter of fact, he had some today, or yeah, I think it was today or mm -hmm. yesterday yeah. about quantum information theory. And what he was using is he was using holographic theory. And what holographic theory, uh, as proposed initially by a guy named Tuhuft, uh, was the idea of use of um, uh, we call automatons in the fancy word for a tiny computer. Uh, this computer is not the computer that we know and love here, but it's a quantum computer. And these computers exist on the surface of things and they have memory and they absorb all the memory that's inside a surface. So if you have a, an event horizon or from the outside, if you had an event horizon of a black hole and it's, it's populated with these uh, automata, uh, they, um, they'll absorb and memorize information coming into it. And that's why information is not lost. On the other hand, information is garbled because it's a quantum computer. Information is slippery. And it doesn't always come out. It very likely will not come out in the same form that it was in. And so there's like the old, like uh, dealing with public key, private key encryption. It's lossful. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, to guess what the original information was because, well, you lost stuff. Uh, so, and the reason he says is because, the, you know, even black holes, you say, well, it sucks in all energy. And not quite. Quantum mechanically, because quantum mechanics is slippery. Every black hole does have a certain degree of entropy about it. It does leak information. It does lose information. It's not destroyed, but it's slippery and it's lost. And you don't know, don't know what the original is about. So these are the kind of things that we use in, when we talk about quantum information theory. Or when we just talk about just how a regular atom interacts with, with its piece and part. How electron shells change. Um, how photons interacting with an, with an electron, you know, how it gets absorbed. You can express this in terms of information exchanges. And, and matter of fact, when you look at something called Feynman diagrams, uh, which express really all the different ways that particles can interact with each other and all the different probabilities. And it really, it's, it's a big graph. It's a big numeric graph of really of information. Um, a particle can split this way. It can recombine in this way. It can then split again this way. And it can do any number of these things and finally come down to this minimum or maximum solution. So yes, just like how I described quantum computers, atoms and, and a single atom is a quantum computer because we say um, as a model that it tries all these different Feynman probabilities of interactions and finally picks some minimum or maximum solution given the you know given what's what's happening usually some sort of energy minimization problems usually what it is uh, well gee that's very nice yes oh. a single atom is a quantum computer. Yeah, and every atom is. Every <laughs> atom is, you know. And, you go, That's and especially if you look at it from Feynman's perspective of all these different choices that it con conceptually tries until it finally gets one. So there's nothing really spooky about quantum computers. And um, But when we think of, gee, what if we were to build a neural network of quantum, you know, using quantum scale systems? And, well, gee, that's kind of actually how reality is. If we get back to Penrose, he was saying, you know, like, great, 
you know, Stuart, you, you've got these systems in biology, which these quantum scale systems, which are left alone for some period of time, and maybe they compute something. Uh, between Stuart Hameroff and Roger Penrose, they go, well, you know, when they're studying the issue of consciousness, one of the issues that comes up philosophically is what's called the homunculus problem. You know, I have, I have a perception of, you know, the eyes, uh, the eye subject, me. Well, what is that? How, how do I, how do I, how am I conscious of anything? Is there a little person, the homunculus inside me, which then does a perception of, because I am, you know, I can perceive my own body. I can perceive my own uh, hands as if I was a small homunculus inside myself looking at my own hands. But that homunculus itself must have a homunculus which perceives it. And it's, it's like Zeno's paradox all over again. Whereas it's infinite regression of homunculi. And so philosophically, you know, people have had a hard time with that for a long time. The same reason Zeno had a problem with his paradox. And when we look at quantum scale systems, how they just, how nature just sort of magically solves this problem, Hameroff and, and Penrose said, well, maybe the only place we, we could possibly conceive that the homunculus problem is solved is where there are these long-running quantum process. That's the only place. Uh, Penrose came up with what he called a graviton, a one graviton, this graviton theory. I'm not a big fan of it. Um, and it was something he was playing with for a while. I'm not sure if he still supports it or not. I think he does. There was a book I read from not too long ago, lovely book on physics called, um, I can't even think of the name of it right now. But The Road to Reality? The Road to Reality. Thank you very much. Awesome book. And I think he still had the sort of one graviton criteria in there. And in that, his one graviton cri criteria is that um, a graviton, which is a quantum unit of gravity, is formed when a quantum scale system is left alone to do its thing long enough. And when a graviton is created, a sort of moment of consciousness is possible. So anything could be conscious, even a rock, if there was something in it, could be conscious. So what he, what Penrose uh, hypothesized was that our brains have, it's like little bubbles popping, little bubbles of consciousness that pop here and there, pop, 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 maybe as much as 40, 60 times a second, which correspond with certain brainwave patterns that Hameroff was looking at. So if you have, you know, it just so happens that there's enough isolation here and there randomly in the human brain that you can get 40 of these per second. And like a film, you know, when, when we look at, at films, we know that their frame rates, for instance, you know, it, like still pictures come by 30 times, 35 times a second or whatever the frame rate is. But our slower working memory in our eyes sees it as a continuous motion. And, and Hammer, uh, uh, Penrose uh, hypothesized the same thing. There may be 40, maybe 60 of these pops happening, happening per second in the brain, but given how the brain works, it's perceived as continuous, uh, continuous role of consciousness. So that is this, the Penrose Hammeroff perspective on consciousness. And it happens at the microtubule layer. Um, what Penrose proposes is that, you know, very specific mechanisms by which a piece of microtubule, you know, like if you think of it as like a long railroad, by the way, when you see some of the animations, it's kind of cool. And you look at uh, the kinds of molecules that 
that run up from the cell nucleus along these railroads all the way to the cell wall and then down you know it's it's um uh, really cool stuff but at the same time along pieces of that of that of each particular railroad can be isolated for a period of time and the way the the microtubule is shaped is kind of like a spiral it is a spiral and when pieces of it are isolated those spirals vibrate and basically can compute something and they can be isolated long enough that Hammeroff's or sorry Penrose's one graviton criteria can be met um, my question to Stuart was so what are these quantum computers computing he felt it was still an open question um, of course, it's going to be some kind of minimization, maximization problem, usually minimizing energy in some some way. So that's left open. If we were to use quantum scale neural networks, uh, you know, quantum scale phenomenon building neural networks, can we build systems that reach a Penrose one graviton criterion? Is it possible in human-made systems to do that? And if Penrose is correct, they could actually be truly conscious in the same respect that you and I are, and not zombies like I was when I hit my head on, on the ground. You know, I was uh, a zombie for a day. Not a term I, I think we should introduce, well, go into a little more detail about here, is the qubit, uh, which is the unit of information in quantum systems. In quantum computers, in, in engineered quantum computers, we call it a qubit, or even in, which has then been adapted to quantum information theory. Yes. And it's, you know, the qubit is, you know, it's like a bit in regular computing. The idea is that you have a signal or a lack of signal, a connection, a lack of connection, something. Doesn't matter, just a single version. The problem with a qubit, the difference between a qubit and a regular bit, is that, remember, at the quantum scale, information is slippery. Information, you know, to recover original information, you need error correction, you need some way of actually talking back to the um, original source. But not only that, but, you know, we, we do, when we have, when we make a quantum computer, we want the ability to get an answer to Zeno's paradox. We don't want infinite loops and that kind of thing. So the qubit is designed with a little bit of slip in it. You know, there's, uh, it's not just, you know, current coming in, current coming out. There is a, there's actually a third, like a third connection to it, which is the, the slip in quantum information. It allows Zeno's paradox to Get an, get an answer. And that's the best way to put it without getting into all the gory details of imaginary number of, of complex numbers and that kind of thing. So uh, that's that's a qubit. And when we talk about uh, quantum information theory with regard to like the holographic principle, our little automa our automatons are qubits or collections of qubits of some kind. They are quantum memory of some kind. And a simple electronic state, you know, an, an, an electron state in an atom, ground state, you know, uh, 
just above the ground state, whatever it is, that is a qubit. It's one piece of information. I'm in the ground state. I'm not in the ground state of a hydrogen atom. A qubit. Very simple. Uh, no other information is implied. Uh, an electron exists. An electron doesn't exist. And electrons are really good examples because they are an example of a f truly fundamental pro uh, particle in, in physics where even quark-wise, you know, there's what's it made of? I mean, from a, it's a point size, you know, it's a point source. It has no, as far as we know, it has no physical dimension. It's really weird. So electrons are very, very nice. And another thing, by the way, that uh, Penrose interestingly uh, hypothesized something going back to what's known as twister theory, that things like electrons, photons, best are truly just they aren't really there but they are connections between you know they are an informational connection between two parts and two points in space and the reason he says that's because of relativity if you were in a rocket ship going faster and faster towards the speed of light what you will notice is that the universe in front of you starts becoming um blue and in back of you starts becoming red. It's called the relativistic Doppler shift for light. Now, eventually, that blue in front of you starts becoming ultraviolet, starts becoming gamma rays, black. What you see in front of you is, is a black hole. And the faster you go, the, the bigger that black hole gets. Even in back, infrared, it's black. Before you know it, close to the speed of light, the, inf the entire universe looks like it shrinks relative to you like a thin ring about you. At the speed of light, the universe is infinitely thin. You, if you were a photon, you would travel from your source to your target, wherever you land, in an infinite period of time. You would not really travel. The universe seems to condense around you, and you are just a connection between your source and target. So Penrose went along with something called twister theory, which was based on that idea that, that Photons are more of a negative space as opposed to a positive real thing. They're connections. So an electron can be seen as a, can also be seen as a, a modeled as a simple connection and not a real thing. And that's why we we will tend to model qubits using electrons, electron states when we actually design quantum computers. And so a qubit in a quantum computer is some kind of electron state with some slip that allows Zeno's paradox to be solved. Returning to the very beginning of our discussion, to McCullough Pitt's neurons, there are a number of proposals, in fact, most of the proposals, papers I saw about quantum neural networks involved, replacing them with qubits, calling mm -hmm. them corons. <laughs> I have never heard that Well, I only saw the word coron in one of them, but creating a superposition state, uh, firing and resting. So we have to go into what a superposition is, and uh, we already know firing and resting because our brains do that constantly. Mm -hmm. and everyone should have an intuitive understanding of that. So the Sh Erwin Schrodinger, is back in the earlier days of quantum mechanics, was, you know, he needed to model quantum quantum scale interactions and the schrodinger model is one where 
all the possibilities of results are occurring at the same time. And he modeled them like little clocks. They had phase. And what we mean by clocks, you know, what we mean by phase is that, you know, any position on a clock is just a different phase. So they were happening at the same time in the same space. They were superimposed upon each other like waves, exactly like waves, um, which is why he, he went for phase and clocks. You, you know, you look at a Schrodinger equation and, there, and eventually you end up with sines and cosines and all that trigonom trigonometric stuff. And like we mentioned before, if you were to invert a wave, you know, there, you, you can cancel it out. There's positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement of waves, uh, interference rather. Uh, and quantum systems in the Schrodinger model are modeled just like that. So there are some possibilities that cancel each other out, some reinforce each other. Finally, you end up with, with some answers, with an answer at the end. And go, that's very nice. So the model is that they're in multiple states at the same time. Uh, I've, I'm personally kind of uncomfortable with that, but I'm not going to worry about that right now. So when we talk about modeling, and let me back up a second, when we think about modeling in these superimposed simultaneous states the reason we, we say quantum computers are efficient because they're like computers with classical computers with multiple cores where there's several tasks working at the same time they are not sequential to each other and when you have something working at the same time it's obviously going to be quicker we have an intuitive sense of that so the idea that we can create uh, these quantum neurons where as we're training them, we can train them very rapidly, let's say with a very fast moving video of Nicole and, you know, making funny faces to the camera and mussing her hair up and doing different things. Um, and it would happen rapidly because, you know, the states would all be in some, you know, all be operating simultaneously and it's, it's like a multi-threaded computer. Um, that's what they're talking about. And that's why they're saying this could be very efficient I'm, I'm not too worried about the efficiency. One of the problems that I think comes with that is that I mentioned before information is slippery at the quantum scale. You may have to run multiple trials in order to see what answer comes out most of the time. Because even in Schrodinger's model, uh, not you don't always get the same answer. Each one of those little possible answers are have a certain probability of coming to pass. You know, one, they have a probability of coming to pass 5% of the time. And indeed, if you run enough trials, you'll see all these different answers come out. And what I mean by that is, let's say, for instance, we are studying radioactivity. And uh, we're counting, you know, beta particles that pop out of, a, out of a single source of atoms. And we want to say, how long does it take before a single atom breaks down? And uh, in Schrodinger's model, there is a number of possibilities of time, maybe even an infinite number of possibilities. And if we actually run the experiments over and over and over again, we see we get a, a you know, a bell-shaped curve of timing of, uh, you know, things, of beta particles popping out of these, these atoms. Uh, and the same thing happens and in, in, will happen in any quantum computer. And you may have to run enough trials, run enough trials to understand that hey, this happens most of the time. So we may lose some efficiency in trying to create a, a useful quantum uh, 
neural network, one that doesn't have too much noise in it, you know. So I'm not not too worried about the speed. What I am interested about is the solving of the Zeno's paradox, solving of the uh, you know infinite regression in homunculus, you know, the homunculus problem in philosophical homunculus problem in consciousness. Uh, and that just nature does it now may not always come with the same result, but it, the problem will get solved by nature. And one way of modeling that is by the give it up model or the, the musical chair model. Everybody's maybe played that game of musical chairs when you were young and, you know, there's not enough chairs for everybody. And when the music stops, you sit down. Maybe there's a chair near you. Maybe there's not. You don't know when the music's going to stop. Just whenever the music stops, whatever answer you have is what you have. Uh, so one model of quantum mechanics is just that, that at some point there's only so much energy and nature just stops the music and whatever you've got, you've got. Uh, it's not a bad model. So, um, and, and biology does that a lot too. The interesting thing about biology and biological systems, biological neural networks, is was brought up by Erwin Schrodinger, who wrote a wonderful book, if you ever get a chance to read it, What is Life? And the question he had in there is, why are there so many atoms in biology? My God, there's a lot. And one way of looking at it is that of all these quantum, all the quantum chemistry going on, these equations are solved. Like I mentioned, you may need multiple trials on a particular quantum system to understand what the predominant result is. Well, guess what? In biology, these things are happening over and over again, just like that, all at the same time. So pretty darn quickly, because there's so much redundancy and so many different threads going on everywhere, the predominant answer comes out most of the time in biology anyway. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you end up with cancers and that kind of thing because, well, it's just the nature of quantum mechanics and some of those some of those equations come out answering cancer. Um, but biology is highly redundant. Biological, biological neural systems be highly redundant. To create successful, I do believe to create successful quantum scale neural networks, we will need to be highly redundant. These will be massive scale systems in order to come up with useful results. Um, but they will better than any classical machine will because they can answer, they can answer, um, uh, you know, those infinite regression problems while our laptops cannot. All right. We are nearing the hour and 30 minute mark and we have covered most everything we wanted I yes we have quite a show here so obviously these are very broad very deep abstract topics but and there's always lots of dependencies you know you, you can go on any number of tangential topics from here. And when you have a situation like that, you can be left with lots of questions. But what about this? And what about that? And, 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 and. Well, I trust How many ands and buts do you have? We'll investigate the topics further. I have quite a few, particularly in the area of quantum information theory, but we should reserve that for another show. Mm -hmm.
and that certainly could fill one. Oh, yeah. 